Hello and welcome to the Random Walks podcast. Today I have Dr. James Fraser, who is a biophysicist whose research focuses on discovering the macromolecular structure and dynamics of proteins, defining computation states essential for function and understanding transitions between these states. Dr. Fraser earned a PhD in molecular and cellular biology from the University of California at Berkeley and prior to that graduated with his bachelor's in biology at McGill University. Welcome, James. Hi, thanks for having me. So James, you have had a really fantastic career path in STEM and you have done a really wonderful sort of research over the years and all. So where did this all start for you? Were there any early inspirations in your life who inspired you to get onto STEM? Maybe some family member or some teacher who sparked an interest and that's how your journey began. Yeah, so unlike a lot of folks, I, I don't have a very scientific uh, family. My uh, parents are, were really much more interested in the arts and music, and, and my family was much more focused on, on that when I was growing up. Uh, and indeed, I wasn't really interested in science uh, until the end of high school. I'd always done very well in math and science, but it wasn't until sort of towards the, the end of high school that I got really interested in actually molecular biology, which is, you know, sort of what hooked me and I'm still hooked by. And I went to a really fantastic high school in, in Toronto, public high school, Northern Secondary School. And one of the special things in that, the program that I was in there was that we had teachers who were able to take us small groups of students for like I think six six weeks at a time and introduce us immer- like very intensively into a subject. And I had an amazing science teacher named Angela Vavitsas who uh, sort of basically ran this six week module on how to do a restriction enzyme digest and run a gel. And I thought that was the coolest thing. And I got, I got hooked with that simple uh, experiment and watching bands, you know, move through a gel with UV uh, light. And, and that sort of led to, uh, in probably in grade 10 or 11, I got grade 11, uh, getting really interested in science and really changing my focus of what I wanted to study in university and, and beyond. Uh, so Angela, um, you know, really changed the course of my whole life with that class. My best friend and lab partner, uh, Andrew Smith, who I worked with for several years after that with Angela doing sort of other independent projects in high school, building, studying antibiotic resistance and and, uh, building sort of early prototype molecular biology toys, like sort of synthetic uh, biology computers uh, out of DNA. Uh, he went on, he stayed on the track of not science. Like we did all this science together and he's now a business school professor in Boston. So we both ended up in the States uh, as professors in, in academia, but he, he is a business school professor, uh, which was really the track that he was always on. And, and I sort of took a zag and, and got really into science thanks to Angela. So it wasn't, wasn't one of those um, early, really early childhood experiences, but it was a situation where a single amazing teacher going above and beyond totally changes your life. And I, I honestly, I dedicated my thesis 
to Angela, my PhD thesis, as well as to my grade eight French teacher, Yudita Pamphil, and my mother, who is also a, a teacher. And these three great public school teachers completely changed, changed my life. And, and I, don't, I don't know what I would be doing if it wasn't for Angela, but I, I love what I do so much now that I'm so thankful uh, for her. Truly, and from your story, it's so heartening to learn about the fantastic role your teachers essentially played in helping shape your career as such and all, because too often many are dissuaded by a certain subject because of some approaches, teachers and all, but having a teacher who sparks a lifelong interest can really change your life as we can also to totally trajectory. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, School was not uh, perfect. Like I had plenty of teachers that I didn't get along with. I was, you know, in constant, constant trouble in school, getting, you know, suspended and <laughs> kicked, <laughs> kicked out of school, you know, all the way, all the way through. Uh, and, but always, uh, always really resonated with the teachers who, who sort of saw through the boredom that, that we were going through and tried to give us something above and beyond. And Angela is like the epitome of that. And we, you know, I, up until that point, I'd never really worked so hard on, on something. And I think that's also part of what I really enjoyed about it was sort of this connection between the work, you know, having to do the work to get the output. I, before that sort of, I, that had never really connected to me at, at school before. So I never, I, I hadn't really enjoyed, I'd always done very well in everything, you know, sort of humble braggy, but I, I, I had never really uh, felt like what I was putting in was directly connected to something interesting coming out. And, and that all changed with, with Angela. Absolutely. And considering the moment we are in, one can't resist but drawing parallels to a recently minted Nobel laureate, Professor David Julius. Who My neighbor, DJ. About... Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's the best. It's so, so awesome to, to see his, uh, his win. I mean, a lot, long time coming, but he, he's one of the, the real good guys. So it's, it's truly fantastic to see you know, him, him win uh, and get that recognition with, it, with his colleague, Artem, yeah. Absolutely, and he also talked a lot about how his high school physics teacher in his case was instrumental in shaping and inspiring him to pursue a career path in science, much like how Angela had a terrific influence on you to pursue the life sciences. Yeah, and yeah, I, I, I public school teachers are, are, are real heroes and, and, the time when I was going to uh, school in in Toronto uh, in the in the late '90s, you know, it was a real time of political upheaval, uh, Canadian style political upheaval. Not nothing compared to the political upheaval we've experienced here in the U.S. the past few years, but uh, a lot of real battles between uh, the teachers, labor unions, and the provincial government and. Obviously, with my mother being a, a public school teacher, I, I stood uh, really uh, firmly on the side of, of the teachers. But you know, no matter how much recognition uh, I can I can give to all the the amazing teachers that I've had, uh, you know, it's never enough. They they really do uh, such an amazing job of of showing up every day, inspiring inspiring kids, uh, and and I know that a lot of 
my colleagues have have had similar experiences. Truly so, and having been inspired to pursue the life sciences, so in high school itself, did you have an inkling of studying even further after college, getting a PhD and all, or was it shaped by your undergraduate experience? Yeah, so probably around that same time, uh, I was dating someone whose parents were both professors at the University of Toronto in, in the sciences. And that really exposed me to the idea of like professor as job uh, and, and sort of the whole career path. I, I had no idea uh, really what the path would be. My family, uh, you know, as I mentioned, were not in the sort of heart, in the sciences at all uh, and not in the, uh, in academia. Uh, my mom was a teacher. My father used to work in the music industry and then worked as a civil servant uh, sort of later uh, when I was a little older. And yeah, so they, they, my, you know, then girlfriend long ago's parents were the ones who really kind of were my first exposure to the idea that professors wrote grants and the structure of a lab, like that there were graduate students and postdocs and technicians and the way they would get stressed about papers and reviews and deadlines and balancing teaching and all of that. So I, I sort of had this uh, uh, exposure when I was around the same time I was being introduced uh, to molecular biology uh, with the academic career. And perhaps those two things are more linked uh, than I realize now, now that I'm reflecting on, on the contemporaneous nature of it. Uh, but so that that sort of, I guess, link that, that it could be a, a career path and, and something that, that seemed fun. Uh, I just, I, I can't express sort of how much I was hooked on the mechanics of doing the molecular biology with, with Angela and, and the fact that you could sort of persist in that and, and keep sort of playing uh, with, with ideas and with techniques and with people uh, as, a, as a career path, you know, certainly seemed open to me uh, at the time. I wouldn't say I got really strategic about it until more midway through uh, undergraduate. Um, my, you know, undergrad at, at McGill um, was, I didn't really get involved in research until at McGill until my last year, I would work in the summers at University of Toronto, but during the year, I uh, I didn't really work in a lab until until my last year, um, and you know that was mainly because I was having fun and it, it would take extra time, <laughs> things like that. So I uh, it wasn't really until the end that I I got kind of a, a little more strategic about it. That's really exciting. And you went to Berkeley for grad school. So was that one of the few schools that you applied to and got in and the department at Berkeley fit your interest the best? Or was it some very specific reason that made you go there for grad school? Yeah, so I have a, a sort of bit of a deep, dark secret in that my mother is actually American. So I have, I have American citizenship uh, through her. Uh, and that made it a little easier to consider the US for uh, graduate school. So when I was 
uh, heading into my last year of undergrad, I was working in the lab that I worked in for several years at University of Toronto that summer uh, with uh, Professor Alan Davidson at University of Toronto. And Alan has become a great friend and mentor. And he's one of really unique in that three people who have passed through his labs in different forms are now professors at UCSF. So there's uh, me, I was an undergrad. Uh, Nevin Krogan was a rotation student with Alan uh, at University of Toronto, but then ultimately joined Jack Greenbot's lab. And then Joe Bondi Denemy uh, was uh, actually a graduate student in Alan's lab and, uh, and then eventually became, actually all of us were UCSF fellows and then all of us became faculty uh, at UCSF. Uh, so Alan has this strange special connection with UCSF. Anyway, back to the point. I was talking with Alan about my future, probably over uh, a beer, uh, and uh, Alan was telling me that I should consider going to graduate school in the U.S. and telling me about great places and that, you know, if I um, wanted, I could, you know, then the, the timelines worked out that I could apply in the US and if I decided I didn't want to or if they decided they didn't want me, I could still apply afterwards in, in Canada. And you know, so thinking about that and, and drawing up a list, I, I kind of drew up a list of you know seven or eight seven or eight schools, um, you know, partially based on talking to Alan and other folks about you know where where was reputationally good uh, and partially just you know, I, I really thought I wanted to live in New York City, so I applied to Rockefeller University and, and things like that. And then the way the system works uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, pre-COVID anyway, uh, is pretty remarkable uh, in that all of these places will fly you out for you know, three days and show you a real, I, I always say they, they treat you like a king for five days so they can treat you like shit for five years. Uh, it's like the nicest, the nicest meals you'll ever have, uh, the, the most available the faculty will ever be. Now I'm on the other side of it. I, I totally, uh, you know, still have this slightly cynical take on it. Um, anyway, so I, I kind of didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and if I gave myself, if I could give myself advice now, I would have gone on fewer of these trips. But I think I went on, you know, seven uh, graduate recruitments or something, flying out each time in the middle of the Montreal winter to some location, you know, California in February, uh, when you're coming out of, you know, minus 40 degrees, Montreal slush uh, was particularly appealing. Uh, and so I ended up loving Berkeley. Uh, and the main reason was at the end of it, you know, the, the best advice I got from Alan was drop a list of who you resonated with the most uh, science-wise and, uh, and go for the place that's the most enriched in, in those people. Um, because ultimately the location matters, you gotta be happy. The graduate program structure doesn't really matter. It's basically the same everywhere. You take some classes in the first year, you do some rotations, and then you're in a lab. And once you're in a lab, that's what matters the most. So you got to try to find, this is the advice now, or my version of it that I give to folks, which is you got to find the place where you're 
most likely to work for something you find exciting where the advisor is not an asshole. And, uh, and for me, Berkeley was that place that was super enriched. And one of the, I was sort of straddling the line between being really interested in evolutionary genomics and biophysics. And there were great people in both areas. So on the evolutionary genomics side, there were folks like Mike Eisen and Mike Levine, who I thought were just so cool. And Mike Eisen became a really good friend of mine uh, and, and was really the one who convinced me, tipped me over the edge to, to go to Berkeley. But then on the protein biophysics side, uh, people who became really lifelong mentors, you know, I, I got this great vibe from them. Susan Marcusy, uh, in particular, who was a protein folding person who knew Alan really well. And then my eventual PhD advisor, Tom Alber, was somebody who I had a really memorable interview experience with and became really fixated on this initial result that he showed me then uh, when I was interviewing that eventually became you know, a part of papers that, that he and I published together and, and uh, you know, became part of my, my thesis work and is still something that inspires the work that I, I do today. Uh, and so that, that was really the process of how I ended up at, at Berkeley. Um, yeah, it was really Alan's, Alan's good advice. So I was really lucky to, to have landed in an undergrad research lab with somebody who was not only willing to guide my science, but also has been just a tremendous source of career advice uh, for me uh, through every, every step on the process. Truly, and just I'm inclined to ask, did Berkeley being a public school also play a role considering your immense fascination with public schools? I, my, one of my best friends growing up, Jacob Weinrib, uh, is now a, a law professor at Queens University uh, Public School in, in Canada. And he jokes that, you know, if, if people meet me for more than five minutes, he'll always say, oh, Jamie Fraser. I believe in public education. So I, I so strongly uh, love that aspect, but I did apply to, to private institutions as well, MIT and Rockefeller. I wasn't, I wasn't fixing it, but I am proud to say I, I have spent my entire educational career from kindergarten through to tenured professor in public institutions. Truly, that's really wonderful. And so coming off as someone who had, hadn't really known what research exactly was until your, your undergraduate days and all. So how was negotiating grad school like? So did you face the ubiquitous imposter syndrome? Do you even face it now? And how did you confront it then? And how do you confront it now? Yeah. Um, I would say uh, imposter syndrome crept in later for me. Uh, I was maybe a little too ridiculously confident at the beginning of graduate school, uh, but it, it crept in later, uh, certainly in darker periods of, of graduate school, uh, where I felt like I had, you know, chosen the wrong lab or the wrong project and then, you know, hit me like a ton of bricks a couple years into running my own lab at, at UCSF. Uh, for sure. But the beginning of graduate school uh, was a really pretty easy transition for me, actually, uh, as was, uh, you know, sort of 
high school to undergrad. I, I'd had, I'd, I'd felt really well prepared for undergraduate, uh, having really amazing teachers and, and curriculum in, in high school. And sort of similarly, the Canadian science experience is not liberal arts, uh, right? So there, it's, it's a little bit more intensive study. Uh, and the first year curriculum at Berkeley was really designed to bring everybody onto the same page. Um, and so it was a lot of stuff that, you know, I, I had done before. Most of my last two years at McGill were spent engaging with primary literature and, and having sort of more grad school type classes. Uh, and so that, that transition sort of course-wise was, was okay. And then as far as the research side, I mean, the, the great luxury of being in graduate school is that you really get to dedicate yourself to the research. And, and that meant it was a lot more like the summer undergraduate experiences that I'd had in Allen's lab for several years uh, than sort of the co-curricular research that I'd done my last year at McGill. And I'd done really different things as an undergrad. So in Allen's lab, I spent one summer working on uh, on sort of protein folding and allosteric of tetracycline repressor antibiotic resistant proteins, and then a couple summers working on bacteriophage mobile elements and genomics. And then in undergrad, I, I worked in a lab uh, at McGill studying frog developmental biology, cell biology. Um, and so I'd, I'd had a pretty wide range of wet lab. Uh, and, and computational uh, experiences. And, and coming in to graduate school, I was pretty certain that I didn't want to continue on the cell and developmental biology path, but I was really interested in sort of the genomic stuff. And I was interested in the biophysics, protein folding, protein dynamics side of things, eventually wanting to merge those interests together, which uh, is something that's really exciting in, in the field right now, I think, leveraging evolutionary signals to better understand macromolecular structure and dynamics. And that was, you know, my ideal thesis would have merged those together much more directly. Uh, but I think in, uh, in the rotations, I discovered a love of really doing the mechanical work again of biophysics and structural biology. And my first rotation uh, was with Tom Albert, the lab I, I ended up joining. And going up to the synchrotron for the first time to collect x-ray data. Uh, there was nothing that prepared me for how cool and how much fun that would be. And I just, I love that. And I wanted to basically spend, you know, as much time as possible in graduate school, learning how to collect that data and, and, and collecting it uh, and, and innovating on how to, how to collect that type of data. And by the end of that rotation, I was pretty sure, even though it was the first rotation, I was going to um, join his lab. And then for my second rotation, I, I did some NMR. And then I, I worked with Mike uh, Eisen for my third rotation, um, during which I realized that, you know, it'd be much better to be uh, baseball, you know, friends with, with Mike than for us to work together uh, in, as advisor and, uh, and advisee. Uh, and so... You know that that transition was was pretty seamless, and I, I felt really ready to go. And it wasn't until you know I hit some of the more rough patches where I felt like I wasn't going to have the kind of 
really interesting results that I, I, you know, was setting out to do or, or when, when people would say things that, that would really get under my skin about the work that I was doing and its importance or things like that, that I would, uh, you know, this, this idea of sort of do, I, I, I think sort of the traditional imposter syndrome is like, do, do I feel like I belong here? And I don't, I have to say, I don't, I've always felt like I belong, but it's just like, do I feel like shit? Do I feel like I maybe don't deserve to be where I'm at? Yeah, sometimes. Uh, and, and then, as I said, you know, the things eventually picked up in graduate school, of course, there's ups and downs. Uh, but by the end of that, things were mostly up. And, and the start of my time at UCSF was mostly up. And, and then about two or three years in, I would say that's when that was the first time maybe I felt like, you know, this, this, uh, I don't deserve to be here, or this, you know, I'm so, I, I'm so shitty. Like this is this is ridiculous, and and uh, and that's when I think it, it really kicked in. But you know, again, you get over it; it comes back. You get over it; comes back. I think it's just a a part of uh, a part of trying to succeed in any. Um, you know, I don't know that science has to be competitive and that it has to be cutthroat or zero sum, but uh, any any endeavor where you are trying to push yourself uh, beyond your, your limits, uh, right? And that's, that's really what we're trying to do or what in, in our labs is, is discover stuff new, uh, you know, push, push our capabilities beyond where they are currently. And, and anytime you do that, you get uncomfortable and you worry like, do I, you know, am I just too shitty to, to be able to do this or, or can I get it done? Yeah. That was a really wonderful answer and a really terrific elucidation on your struggles with grad school and all. And alongside, you gave a great overview of the potential research career you were trying, starting to chart out and all. And you talked about sort of like gravitating away from the dirty wet lab type of work to more computational side of things. And one can't help but notice around the time you were starting grad school, computing and biology were really starting to pick up and all next gen sequencing was really coming of age after the human genome projected had just been completed five years back and all. So were those factors also influential in sort of pouring into this area, this very, very happening area at that point of time? I, th I think so. I, I don't know that it was as strategic again as, as maybe, you know, I can, we can tell a just so story in, in retrospect, I'd gotten into uh, really simple programming scripting, really what we would now call simple data science, you know, parsing, parsing, uh, you know, data from different sources and, and sort of remixing it through my love of baseball statistics. And I, and that was sort of one of the things that, that Mike Eisen and I originally connected on. And so coming into graduate school, I was already a fairly proficient programmer in Perl. Uh, and then, you know, midway through graduate school, I made the switch, which I still haven't switched from uh, over to, to Python as a lot of the, the ecosystem of of sort of bio, you know, simple biology programming and lab programming and plotting and things like that uh, went over to Python. And it's something where 
my lab likes to joke, I am, you know, one of the world's best worst programmers. Like I am, I am not, I've never taken any formal classes in anything, uh, but I usually know how to get things done. Uh, and, but I've now also never really tackled a big sort of software engineering project, right? I've, I've, I've mostly been, you know, a, a very advanced scripter. Uh, and, and what I think now would really be classified as sort of, you know, the, the data science uh, type stuff rather than, than computer science. Um, so I always wanted to merge that, or I, I guess I don't, I don't see uh, as much of a distinction between the wet lab and, and, and computation in, in that I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to be only a computational biologist but I think it's essentially unacceptable in this day and age to be only an experimentalist, to say that I am not going to take up my own sort of data science, plot, exploratory plotting, exploratory data analysis side of my experimental results. Um, and so pretty much everybody who passes through my lab and indeed passes through the graduate programs that I hold some influence over, you know, has to get pretty comfortable with uh, the scripting side of, of things, you know, preferably in, in Python, uh, and to, to be able to really interrogate their, their results. So I, I don't think I was, I don't think I was strategic about it, but it was a skill that I already had from a different context that I saw the natural way to start applying it in this context of the other things I loved. And I don't get me wrong, I loved certain aspects of experimental molecular and structural biology, uh, even though now I'm basically retired and I've had this recent thumb surgery that, that you can see, wonderful image for those of you on the, uh, on the listening to the audio, that, that is taking me even more out of commission from, from pipetting. But it's been a few years since I pipetted regularly. Um, but I, I, I didn't love cell and developmental biology, but I absolutely just, I've always loved the, the experimental manipulations of, uh, of structural biology since I started doing it. Uh, and, and actually, ironically, I'd say my cell biology experience played a big role in my technical capabilities for the structural biology, because I was really used to using micro manipulators to dissect frog embryos. And so this connection between looking through a microscope and manipulating really small things really helped with crystal fishing, crystal harvesting that I ended up having to do a lot in, in, in the structural biology context. That's really interesting. And you gave a really great overview on how in this day and age, computation and experiments do go hand in hand of sorts. And you mm -hmm. shared some really recent insights. And one can't help observe as a structural biologist and structural biology as a field was really revolutionized around 50, 60 years back by a bunch of ragtag physicists who sure. post for 
sort of transitioned into biology and that's how the whole MRC LMB school of structural biology came about and the molecular biology revolution. Yeah, indeed. About. I would say broader than structural biology, really all of all of molecular biology. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is. There's there's a really uh, interesting sort of set of traditions of the history of, of structural biology because the, you know, the, the really big focus on open science and databases. Uh, the PDB, I think, is just one of the, the protein data bank is one of the most remarkable, you know, deposit depositories, the databases and, uh, and really a, a landmark open science project uh, that I benefited from, you know, people depositing their data, their structures, their structure factors, the ability to remix and restudy that data is, is, is really remarkable. Um, pretty good standardization of software. Now, not professional, you know, Microsoft Word level engineering, but the, the way software was shared um, and standardized uh, in X-ray crystallography and, and electron microscopy is, is a lot of other fields could, could learn uh, from. And then, you know, there, there is this tradition of physicists entering biology. I always joke, I'm, my, I'm, I'm the exception. Uh, I go the opposite way. I truly studied as an undergrad evolutionary biology, cell and developmental biology, and have become more and more of a biophysical chemist as I've gone on uh, in, in my career. Uh, I think it's easier that way because you have, it takes a really long time to learn all the context where the questions are in biology. Whereas the laws of diffraction essentially have not changed since the Braggs wrote them down. Uh, you know, so it's been a hundred years. So, you know, you can crack open a, a, a physics textbook and learn about diffraction uh, a lot easier than, than you can sort of figure out what, what are the interesting questions in enzymes, uh, for example. Uh, and so, you know, there's also this interesting obsession with pedigree and, and lineage in, in all types of science and, and structural biology, uh, you know, in particular, uh, you know, I, I trace my path, uh, you know, back through Tom and, and, and Greg Petsko, and then Petsko is part of the Oxford School of Structural Biology, not the, uh, not the Cambridge School, I believe, maybe I've gotten it wrong. Uh, and, 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 you know, that, that, um, that aspect, I think, is something that is cute, and it's fun to learn about the history, but we also now are, are appreciating more sort of the destructive aspects of focusing uh, so much on, on lineage and, and pedigree and, and things like that. So, um, yeah. Truly so. And as a field, interdisciplinarity seems to have been a common theme over the years. And as we see more and more of computation sort of playing a big role as such, and as you talked about a lot of the having open source softwares and all and proper standardizations have really helped and all. So do you see sort of this sort of thing replicating all across the sciences with the advent of preprint servers and other things and uh, fields that typically did not have them until a decade back or so? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the future of of science is to be much more open than it has to to embrace sharing and and speed, right? I, I think the if you look at at the case of um, AlphaFold two, the the recent breakthrough by DeepMind uh, in in structure prediction, uh, you know that leverages these things that I I am so interested in, right? Evolutionary signals, the ability of to leverage all these massive sequencing projects to create deep alignments of of proteins, uh, so that we can tease out the signals of what was what does evolution care about to maintain a certain three dimensional fold or to favor a, a three dimensional fold. Um, and, and the first successes of these techniques really relied on, on very deep multiple sequence alignments to learn those principles, often locally for, for specific families, and then connected that back to the rich database of three-dimensional structures. The really exciting advances now are that we, you know, we can go with much shallower sequences, sequence alignments um, to uh, get to these, you know, remarkable structure predictions, and but you couldn't you couldn't have skipped <laughs> skipped that piggybacking on all of that deep sequence, you know, homology uh, searching, right? That 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 uh, that you really need these large databases to bootstrap your way up, and you need you need the PDB to be completely open um, to to also to complete the, the sort of training, the virtuous training cycle. Uh, and so when I look at the landscape, the fact that it's gonna be more open is, is obvious. I mean, that's, we gotta have that for science and, and the internet is so democratizing for that, right? That basically, you know, there's, there's no excuse not to share your data at the gigabytes level. It's really only at the terabytes level that you have to figure out a special way to to share things, and and even then, you know, it's it's a solvable uh, it's a solvable problem, and, and never mind structural biology where the the you know we can often find reduced representations of uh, you know the, the protein structure that's kilobytes, the structure factors or or map files that are megabytes, the particle stacks in EM. That's where you start to get to gigabytes, and then the full images and in X-ray crystallography or EM, that's where you start to have to really worry about these specialized things. And, and, and there, you know, we, we have to figure out where to draw the boundaries of like, what is the potential reuse application versus the cost of storage, tending towards the idea that even if we can't figure out the reuse yet, there may be somebody who will down the, down the road. Um, and then, so the, the openness is, is clear. And then with, with preprints, which I, I've been very involved uh, with advocating for over the last you know, decade or so, uh, it's clear to me, uh, the, the clearest argument, I think, is just the, the cumulative slowdown of human knowledge because of peer review embargoing knowledge for at best case six weeks and at worst case two years. It, it, it's it's immoral, right? If we really think we are doing important science and we are trying to stand on the shoulders of 
giants. We are trying to build on each other. To lock that knowledge up for this paternalistic fear that people will take it uh, the wrong way and run with it, that it needs to be somehow certified by peer review. It, it, it's, it's immoral. We need to make the ability, we can move science so much faster by letting the peer review happen by all peers having the ability to review it or not. And by virtue, silence uh, and, and is one form of saying this is fine. And the best form of peer review is not somebody taking the time to write out the major success of this paper is this, the major limitation of it is this, and by the way, they're missing three references to my work and a, and a semicolon on page 12. That's not peer review. That's not the ultimate peer review. The ultimate peer review is me taking the work and using it to build on my next thing. And if I don't have the opportunity to do that for six months because some jerk in, you know, at Harvard is just sitting on the paper waiting to review it or waiting for their graduate student to write a first draft of the review for three months or six months. I mean, what are we even doing in this business, right? So I think that, that this movement of preprints and, and open science is not just about doing it because you know it's it's better to break the journals it's really about how do we make science go faster and and because we're going to need science to go faster to solve the big problems that we are going to face climate change the next pandemics etc and we've seen even in this pandemic if we were waiting for the official publications of a lot of small molecule use and antibody usage and things like and public health interventions even you know we'd be we'd be even worse off than we are now uh, and so it's I, i'm very excited for us to push the pace of science even even faster truly so you made a lot of great points and as you pointed out most of the arguments against preprints are spurious at best and certain other fields have had preprints for well over three decades now alongside a peer review process and publication process and journals and they have gotten along just fine and that is the whole point of it making science more open access and as a proponent of public education it is also a point to note that majority of funding through governmental institutions like NIH and all is sort of powered by the taxpayers and at a broader level even the taxpayers have a right to know of the research that has been funded by their work. And never mind the, the fact that, you know, you look at the profit margins of these companies and the amount that, that we're paying, it is just this giant subsidy to an industry that has pretty much stood in the way of innovation uh, as far as scientific communication over the past, uh, you know, 30 years so since the internet really has taken off. Now, there are some really good players within that. And I think, I think that a lot of the publishers are now really recognizing the responsibility and, and starting to do more innovative things. But in my mind, uh, it's a, a little bit too little too late in, in, in most cases, because 
we can we can democratize a lot of this stuff uh, much more than than we than we had the capabilities to, you know, tw twenty years ago. Truly so. And coming back to your journey during grad school, so how was it sort of figuring out a topic that will become the subject of your doctoral dissertation and all? And you sort of, um, and after you sort of got done with grad school, did you continue along the same lines or did you slightly switch tracks and switch to a different field? Yeah, so um, my PhD work is a testament to my horrible scientific instincts, which is that I arrived at, at Berkeley in 2005, uh, having studied mobile bacteriophage elements uh, as an undergraduate in Alan Davidson's lab, having attended talks on CRISPR systems, CRISPR-Cas systems at University of Toronto with Alan, having read the entire literature, you know, which at that time was, you know, a dozen papers, uh, talking, being interested in structural biology and biophysics, talking to Jennifer Doudna about, you know, potential projects and things like that, and deciding what I was really interested in doing was studying sidechain rotomers with Tom Albert. You know, that, that, that is, you know, that, that just shows you how great my, my scientific instincts uh, are. And, you know, and of course, Jennifer is, Doudna is such a, a powerhouse and, uh, and uh, you know, the only thing me being on that project would have done was maybe slowed it down, slowed down her eventual Nobel Prize uh, by, by a year or two. Uh, but uh, but I, I, have, I have the worst scientific instincts. So I, I got really interested, as I mentioned, uh, Tom Albert, my, my PhD advisor, who, who passed away uh, a few years ago and, and I was very close with. Uh, he, when I interviewed at Berkeley, he showed me this idea that he had of sort of hidden signals in the raw data of X-ray crystallography. Uh, the or not well the process data of X-ray crystallography, the electron density maps, and the idea that there, even though we model proteins in a single structure when we deposit the data in the PDB, that there are multiple structures that are coexisting in the in the crystal, and that those multiple different structures leave their imprint at weak levels in the electron. Density And the way the analogy that I always like to make is not one for the general public, but one for at least molecular biologists and, and biochemists, which is that if you imagine doing a Western blot uh, for a, a protein and you uh, expose it just to a low level, you will get a band for the major species of that protein. Let's say it's 45 kilodaltons. But then if you keep exposing uh, the, the film, you know, often you'll see another band uh, about eight or nine kilodaltons above that. And then another one, eight or nine kilodaltons above that and so on and so on. And there's sort of a, a ladder of these weaker bands. And those weaker bands are often ubiquitination of the, the major band. But you would miss that if you just looked at the highest signal to noise 
uh, data on your on your Western blot at low levels of exposure, there are these other bands and and they're not randomly placed, right? They're they're in specific uh, molecular weights. In this case, laddered in a specific way, like the addition of a ubiquitin moiety onto the chain. And what Tom showed me was that electron density was very similar, that it was at low levels of signal to noise, the data weren't randomly distributed, that they were occurring in places that we knew from our knowledge of physical chemistry were relatively low energy positions where we would find alternative conformations of proteins. And that idea stuck in my head and has really fascinated me ever since. How do we extract this dynamic data out of something where our whole paradigm for modeling and indeed our whole paradigm for doing the experiments is about perfecting a single structure? And that has stayed as the question that I've become, been obsessed with now for 15 years since I started graduate school to my own lab today. In fact, we just had a, a preprint, Stephanie Vankovic, a graduate student in my lab, just had a preprint of something that, you know, Tom and I could have only dreamed about doing, which was modeling protein ensembles as a function of ligand binding and looking at how the side chain conformational heterogeneity changes and discovered, she discovered some really cool stuff that I think unifies a whole bunch of literature from the NMR community and sort of the physical chemistry thermodynamic community with a structural interpretation. And that, you know, that, that's like the kind of thing that we would talk about 15 years ago, but that we would have no way of approaching. It's only been because of the advances in the computation that we've been able to, to now approach it. And so my lab does a lot of different things, but it is sort of underwritten by the same central question that Tom introduced me to when I was just starting graduate school, which is how do you extract meaning out of ensemble average data, out of, out of data that is intrinsically the result of multiple things coexisting? How do you separate them out and interpret them mechanistically? And, and that's what I got obsessed with in, in graduate school instead of CRISPR, because I'm an idiot, and uh, and remain obsessed with uh, today. Truly so, but the recent advances with AlphaFold and all would sort of vindicate your decision of sorts. Well, I, you know, look, they're all, I, I landed on my feet and they're all really interesting, interesting questions, uh, but it, it is, uh, you know, I, I just find it, I just find it uh, so amazing how you can just completely miss the boat uh, something, you know, I, I, I did not see the long-term vision as a, as an undergrad and as an early graduate student, the way folks like Jennifer did. And I, I, you know, that's, that's why she's, you know, Jennifer, Jennifer Dow, Jennifer F and Doudna, and, and, <laughs> and, and I'm who I am, you know, the, so I, I, but I, I remain truly interested in, in this uh, problem of, of ensembles and how to model them, how to extract that data out of there, uh, where the signal and noise line is. And, and it's something that, that is 
really a unifying theme across the huge diversity of projects that I got interested uh, in my own lab. That's really interesting. And as you got done with child school, so was staying in academia was always a tantalizing choice for you? Or did you contemplate sort of pouring elsewhere, sort of switching to the industry or switching tracks and doing something completely different? Or did you sort of see yourself going through the postdoc school followed by a tenure track faculty? Yeah, so I, uh, I came into graduate school, uh, like I said, a little overconfident and, and pretty interested in starting, you know, my own lab uh, eventually. And I would say probably around my fourth year of graduate school, um, that the idea of starting my own lab after graduate school seemed something that was within, you know, my grasp or within a reasonable, um, you know, they, like I wouldn't be laughed out of applying for, for faculty positions or, or fellows positions. Uh, and so through a whole convoluted path of uh, my, uh, you know, what I call my science fairy godmother, Susan Marcusy, and now a bunch of colleagues at uh, UCSF, Andre Shawley and Nevin Krogan and Tanya Kortemi, um, and talking with them, uh, you know, I eventually landed on an independent position at, at UCSF, where I remain uh, today uh, as, a, as a fellow, independent fellow, faculty fellow, which we have at UCSF, funded by um, what is now QBI, uh, the Quantitative Biosciences Institute, but at the time was QB3. Um, and, and that was, you know, a remarkable sort of privilege. Uh, it solved a lot of problems in my personal life. My now wife was finishing her PhD at Berkeley in Jasper Ryan's lab and needed a little bit more time. So I wanted to stay in the Bay Area, but I knew I didn't want to start a traditional postdoc. Um, you know, I honestly thought I was going to apply to faculty positions in Canada. And, and uh, I sort of really, at the time, thought I wanted to move back uh, back home. Uh, and so I needed, you know, I, I was sort of solving this problem of, of, of time a little bit. Um, so I, I, you know, interviewed and, and, and had that offer for that position. Then I took a year almost off of what I call competitive science, where um, I basically left Tom's lab, but was still a student on fellowship went to a lab in Israel, uh, to Danny Tofik's lab, who also un unfortunately just, just passed away uh, last year uh, at the Weizmann Institute, had this remarkable experience in his lab in just a short amount of time. I, I was there for you know basically like four months and it totally reinvigorated my joie de vivre for science. Like I, I just loved Danny, I loved his lab. I loved being there. I had the best time. I got really good at some of the molecular biology that I had, was okay at in uh, in graduate school, but things like making libraries and 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 figuring out how to do selections and screens and things like that 
learned so much in Danny's lab. I just had the best time. And, um, and that has also been a big thing, theme of, I just love the international community of science that I could cold email this rock star professor in Israel and say, hey, I'm a fourth year, fifth year graduate, you know, about to be a fifth year graduate student at Berkeley. Here's my manuscript that's under review. Here's like a one paragraph description of a project that I'd like to work on in your lab. Um, and I'd love to come visit for four, four or five months. And by the way, like, you know, please like take me. <laughs> and we've never met or anything, you know, get on Skype with him once uh, and have him sort it all out and, you know, show up three months later in Israel, halfway around the world, uh, having never met the guy in person and, you know, show up on a Sunday and be in the lab pipetting on a Monday. Uh, that's awesome. So then, I, you know, I did that and, and that was amazing. And then I came back and uh, finished up one more paper with, with Tom uh, and then spent the last couple months of that calendar year, uh, 2010, uh, finishing, I was, I wrote all the problems and solutions for John Curian's undergraduate physical biochemistry textbook. And so the molecules of life. So I, I, I spent the last couple months doing that and finding an apartment in San Francisco, finding a new apartment for us to live in, in San Francisco, which is a months long uh, process. And then also just, I had this arrangement at UCSF that I was going to start my lab, but I, I spent, I was local, I was in Berkeley, so a couple, BART right away. And I just spent a couple months, um, you know, I would go in once a week and give a lab meeting in anybody's lab who would have me just to meet people and, and sort of get an idea of the science that was going on. Uh, and so that year sort of between really having my foot completely on the gas in graduate school and then starting, you know, my own lab at, at UCSF uh, was a really important one uh, for me. And I never really, it all happened sort of in the order that it happened in that I never really considered deeply any alternatives because it all just, I was very fortunate that it all kind of happened. It all kind of fell into place. So, you know, and again, this is, you know, not, you can't rely, you can't rely on this. And, and I recognize that, that there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of folks don't have the same opportunities that I did to sort of make these, these jumps. Um, but it was, it was really, really a special, special time that last year that I had sort of still technically as a, as a graduate student at Berkeley. Truly, that was a really riveting experience that you shared on all. And so what has been the focus of your research group over the past decade and so, and how have the, the concurrent developments that have happened, especially in computing with the rise and rise of deep learning methods and all, how have they sort of informed and influenced your current research? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the impact of, deep learning and, and machine learning on, on structural biology is still just starting. Um, the, the structure prediction uh, aspects that, that have gotten a lot of press are just the beginning. And, and really when you look at where 
where that sits in our workflow of either drug discovery in industry or mechanistic discovery science in, in academia. Um, what these structure prediction approaches will do is save a lot of time, but they still suffer from what my good friend and colleague James Holton describes as the last angstrom problem, which is that these predictions um, are so good that they basically make all the tedious aspects of the experiments now easy. Getting the first molecular replacement solution in crystallography or de novo chasing, ch tracing the chain in cryo-electron microscopy or, or x-ray crystallography or fixing up a model. These things become much, much better starting from the AlphaFold 2 models. And it's a tremendous breakthrough because of that. Um, what we still need, right, are better models of how proteins interact with small molecule ligands. Uh, and there are a lot of companies, especially, and but also academic groups in this space trying to leverage different deep learning and, and machine learning techniques uh, to be able to do that. The problem is we don't have four billion years of evolution to leverage. We don't have the signals to, to leverage uh, in the same way that we did for, for structure prediction. Now, the type of high throughput fragment screening that my lab does that we you know shamelessly uh, stole from, from Frank von Delft's, all the technology and know-how from Frank von Delft's group uh, at, at Oxford at XChem uh, in the UK, that, that might provide some of the training sets that, that can help you get there. Protein, protein interactions, just the, the interactions of the functional groups of side chains, you know, sort of interact with proteins might get you part of the way there as well. But the, fundamentally, the, the precision that is required to make advances in sort of ligand discovery or mechanistic discovery science, you know, how, what's the chemical mechanism of this enzyme, catalytic mechanism of this enzyme? How does this mutation work pathogenically or not? Those are questions that require a precision that is just outside what AlphaFold is currently providing. And so closing that last angstrom gap, as James calls it, is something that I expect a lot of folks to be trained in on. My interest has been at how there is this tension between doing that and recognizing the ensemble, the fluctuating nature of proteins. Even the idea of AlphaFold as a structure prediction program is somewhat at odds with the true nature of proteins as you know, thermodynamic ensembles. Saying that there is a right answer is at odds with, with, the, with the truth. And so how we leverage new types of frameworks, and there are starts now of frameworks that, will, that, that can exist in this way. Uh, and in fact, Stephanie, the student who I mentioned earlier, just we just wrote a review of an archive paper, the, the uh, preprint that, that DeepMind put out on a variational autoencoder that's 
trying to learn the ensemble nature of proteins from EM data. That, that challenge uh, really excites me uh, as well. And so I, don't, I think I was supposed to give a retrospective of the things my group has worked on over the past 10 years, but as typical, I've focused on sort of what the challenges are ahead. Um, but, but fundamentally, it's you know, th this same theme of th that we are evolving sense of how to represent and model ensemble data is, is still very much developing. And my bet is that that is where the breakthrough of the last angstrom will come from. That, that the part of the reason the last angstrom avoids us is that it is an impossible problem because there is no correct answer for the last angstrom. We need an ensemble to be able to describe it. That was a really great overview and some really prescient thoughts out there on future challenges and potential areas of interest and all. So having been someone as, who did not really have uh, anyone to look up to as a child who did science for a living and having come along and played such a trail and all, how important have mentors been to your journey? Well, I, I hope, you know, along, along the way, while not seeming like a total asshole, <laughs> I've acknowledged some of the mentors that, that uh, you know, have, have impacted me uh, along the way. Now, look, I was a really, you know, I was a really confident uh, kid. And, and the longer I, I go on in this business, the more humility and humbleness I, I actually have. This is maybe the opposite of, of some of my colleagues. So again, like, like, uh, you know, physicists come to biology. I'm a biology coming biologist coming to biophysics. I, you know, feel like science maybe attracts a lot of like not confident people who get confident through science. And I was like the opposite. I was like overconfident, and I've been humbled by by science. So, I, you know, for starting from you know teachers like a Angela in, in particular, and and Alan Davidson, who who I mentioned. Uh, as well at University of Toronto. I mean, Alan has really, Alan has really become, you know, a friend, like somebody who, when I go back to Toronto, I, I love to grab a beer with and, and chat with, uh, world's slowest eater, you know? So if you grab a meal with Alan and you got to budget like three hours to, for him to like finish eating. Uh, and then in graduate school, uh, Tom was a very different mentor than I am to my students and, and postdocs, um, but absolutely an amazing mentor, the right mentor for me at that time in my life. And he and I were very close and, and, uh, and he was both so technically proficient that, uh, you know, he, I, he had, a, again, a very diverse lab scientifically. A lot of the lab, when I was in the lab, was working on infectious disease. And he was a trained crystallographer's crystallographer. <laughs> and my project, because it was so such hardcore crystallography, I could get great advice from him just stopping him in the hall without any context. I could just ask him a question. And he'd, he'd be able to switch into the context of my project immediately. And that's one of the things that... Now I appreciate having many different projects in my lab, how hard it is to context switch sometimes. And he, you know, I recognize now that 
what a luxury it was to work with him on stuff that he was like a true expert on, but also how as mentors, we want to stretch. We want to learn new things too. So you want to be in areas where you're learning alongside the, 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 the learners, the, the trainees. Um, but Tom was a, an amazing human being. I learned uh, a, a lot from him. He had, you know, like such a profound impact on me, not only as a scientist, but as a, as a person. Uh, and yeah, I love, I love, I love the man and I, I really miss him. And, and there are days when I, uh, you know, I get like, I'm getting emotional right now. Uh, you know, just thinking of there are days when I would love nothing more than to, you know, talk to him. And I know that other folks, you know, my, my friend Sime Chow, who was a grad student in his lab as well, sat back to back to me, who's now a professor uh, at UCSF and starting her own thing, you know, like sometimes out of the blue, she will text me or I will text her like just, man, I miss Tom today. Uh, and yeah, that's, you know, that's, it's really, I've been very lucky. I haven't had a lot of, you know, I've my, my family, my parents are still with us and, 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 you know, Tom's death really hit me hard. Um, and he was just, yeah, he was such an amazing mentor, uh, to me in a lot of ways. And then, you know, similarly, um, you know, Danny Tofik, who I worked with in Israel was, uh, who he passed away a year ago and uh, he had an amazing impact beyond inspiring me to just think about this global con global welcoming concept of science. I mean, he had such wisdom. He is a sort of a, you know, Arab Jew, right? Like, a, 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 and, and had, and, and there are no right answers when it comes to uh, you know, the, the, the politics of, 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 uh, of Israel, right? And, and when I was there, I, I, I was raised sort of a secular Jewish Toronto, you know, family. And, and, um, and Danny just always had the most profound, he could weave talking about that with talking about protein engineering to telling hilarious jokes. And he was the, the person I always said that the, the scientist friend of mine, who I most wanted to introduce to my other scientist friends, because he, and, and I just always loved hanging out with him. He would come stay with us in San Francisco, cook great meals, open a couple of bottles of wine, shoot the shit for hours and cover just amazing breadth of, of science and arts and politics and, and all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, those, so those were like my real like those are all my formal mentors, but then along the way, you know, I, I, I've tried to also mention amazing informal mentorship. And that's something I care about a lot in my own role as a faculty member at UCSF is that, of course you have to be there for your students and, and postdocs, but it is really important to make yourself accessible and to take an interest and have empathy for lots of other folks. Because when I look back on some, you know, the, the grand total of my interactions with someone like Dan Portnoy, who's a microbiologist at Berkeley, maybe is two hours. But I feel like in those, you know, 10 minutes, <laughs> 10 minute chunks where I would just see him grabbing a coffee or whatever, I would get some real wisdom. I would get some reassurance. 
in those periods where you're feeling like shit because of your project or whatever to have somebody else just tell you like, you know, that they, they've had it too. And that, you know, you can get back up on the horse and, and keep going. It's huge. Um, so, you know, somebody like that is like, you know, we've never published a paper together. I don't even have a cell phone number. Like, I, but if I saw him again, walking on Berkeley campus, we'd, we'd catch up. But then, you know, there were people at Berkeley who weren't my thesis advisor who had huge impact on me. Susan Marcusy, Mike Eisen, you know, both of them are, are really now, you know, lifelong friends and, and, and folks that, you know, if I have tough decisions to make um, or, or I want to talk about exciting new directions in science or I want to zig or zag, you know, those are, those are people that I'm, are, are right at the top of, of the list to talk to. And then, you know, I think the other big thing is you, you have this incredible community of peers that are mentors too. Um, and, and my grad school classmates and, and the folks who I started labs, started labs around the same time as me at UCSF have been this incredible community uh, as well. And then I know I said finally, but I'll add a postscript, <laughs> which is some of the best mentorship I've received has been, you know, the classic mentoring up. And where folks in my lab uh, have really opened my eyes to a different set of experiences, to certainly the you know gilded path that I have uh, have been fortunate enough to to walk down. Um, but also, you know, they 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 take a lot of responsibility for shaping the lab culture, uh, for shaping the scientific directions. It's a it's a partnership. And, and so I, I really think of, you know, the advice and mentorship that I, I receive from them as, as super uh, important in, in my journey as well. That was a really terrific elucidation of all the friends and mentors who have been really pivotal in your career and life, both professionally and personally. I the know. real paper we published was the friends we've met along the way. <laughs> That's going to be one of those defining sound bites of this podcast. Yeah. And something that I'm really interested in asking you is, considering your path as a first-generation scientist and all, so you have po pointed it out routinely in this terrific conversation, as well as it's a really open secret that science has had its fair share of problems. There have been multiple issues like gender bias, disparity, and discrimination against underrepresented groups in general that have played academic science for long and all. So as a first-generation researcher, were you at the receiving end at any point of time? And more importantly, have any mentees or any Anyone in your circles has been at the receiving end and you had to sort of confront it on their behalf. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would uh, you know, just pause at the, you know, label of, of sort of first, you know, gen, you know, my, my I, had, I had a very sort of, you know, uh, privileged upbringing. And, and so even though my parents weren't, weren't in, in science, uh, you know, it, it was certainly not, I certainly didn't break any uh, barriers, you know, uh, with regard to, to my, my family, uh, and, and higher education. Um, and, you know, and, and, and look, I, I think it's also really important to reflect on all the privilege that, 
you know, I did have growing up, right? Like amazing, amazing parents, financial stability, amazing public education system in Toronto, uh, you know, amazing country to grow up in Canada. Uh, and then, you know, I'm like, you know, a, a cisgendered, heterosexual, white male, you know, uh, like I, you know, there, there's often, uh, you know, greater diversity, you know, the diversity is measured in whether you have a beard or not, uh, not, you know, gender diversity or, or, uh, or, you know, background or anything like that. So um, on many, in many of the rooms that, I, that I'm in, right. And, and so, you know, I, I recognize that, that there, that, uh, that my, my experience is, you know, part of, is actually more typical of sort of the entrenched forces in science, right? Uh, that said, you know, I, I'm here now and I recognize that it's, you know, my, my responsibility to help change it, help broaden access, help make science much more equitable. And a large part of that, you know, perspective comes from growing up with a family that was really interested in social justice, uh, that was really interested in, you know, labor uh, activism, my mother, but also sort of, you know, we uh, had this, uh, you know, secular Jewish tradition of, of social, social justice. My, my uh, you know, my aunts and uncles are really active in, in, in politics and in Canada as well. Um, and, and a responsibility then when you've had privilege to make sure that you are not pulling up the ladder as you, as you go, but in fact, you know, extending a hand and helping bring everybody uh, along with you, because I, I really don't think it's a zero sum game. The, the amount of science that we have to do to confront all the big challenges that lie ahead of us is so vast we are going to need everybody we're going to need all hands on deck and uh and so you know i bristle a lot when i'm in rooms where uh where people describe it as, as a bit of a zero-sum game um regardless i don't have the lived experience to understand um personally a lot of uh the experiences of of people uh, who are coming through my lab, of the types of uh, you know demographics that we would like to have represented at UCSF at the graduate, faculty, administrative levels, etc. Um, but there are a lot of specific actions that we can do to help make sure that that those processes are more fair and equitable. And I've been hugely influenced by, in particular, two current lab members, two relatively senior current lab members, uh, Iris Young uh, in my lab and, and, and Robbie Diaz, uh, who are both just tremendous, uh, tremendously empathetic to other uh, folks with, with marginalized identities and are also very good at opening the eyes of people like me to what experiences are like for folks with with other identities and it's something that um you know we i think a, a lot of people get very defensive about and 
even and I get defensive about it sometimes. Uh, but you know, when I feel defensive about it, I recognize that that's you know the try to recognize what's going on, and take a breath and figure out what's what's really going what's really going on what's really going on here, um, and and sit with that discomfort a little bit, uh, and then recognize that I'll, at my heart, I'm a scientist. I want to take every part of my life that I'm involved in, try and learn something from it, and try and make it better the next time. And now when I you know, feel that discomfort of somebody saying like, hey, there's a, we have too many bearded white men faculty at UCSF. And as a bearded white man faculty at UCSF, you know, it's tempting to feel like, you know, attacked when somebody says that, that like, you don't, we need to fire you and replace you with somebody else. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm open to having that discussion now, right? But a lot of people are, are feel incredibly defensive when we have that kind of discussion. And so, you know, you got to reflect, where is that coming? You know, what would be the consequences of that? And how can we then learn something from our response, the way we're, we feel when a statement like that is made to make this place more equitable, more just. And, uh, and that's honestly, that is a big challenge for the scientific enterprise as a whole been highlighted so much by the pandemic, the you know, murder of George Floyd and, and other, and you know, the murder of George Floyd and many other you know, murders and, and, uh, and, and incidents in the United States over the past you know, two years uh, has highlighted, and it's made it so much more, a, it always should have been a huge part of our jobs, but it's made it even more uh, prominently uh, a part of our jobs. And I think it's, it's something that, that those of us in responsibility, positions of responsibility for labs, graduate programs, departments, universities have to take as, as one of the, the primary responsibilities of our job. Um, and so continuously improving on that aspect, continuously growing uh, is something that, that I, I've learned a lot about from having lab members who are really willing to share with me their experiences. And, and, and to be honest, you know, I've, I've failed at that with some lab members uh, and I've gotten better at it with others. And, you know, I hope to be even better with the, the next set. Um, but I, I, but the, the, you know, the, the point is that it's, it's always gotta be about improving. You're, we're, we're, we're so far away from the destination that, that anybody who sort of says like, okay, when we hit this benchmark number, I think isn't taking it seriously enough. Those are some really great points out there. And you, you make some really terrific points that we all sort of need to incorporate as such, because we have seen this repeatedly in science, both in the practical sense, as well as in the metaphysical sense, diversity, 
of data sets or diversity of people both help enable better science for all and and it is something really we do something in a more serious manner rather than undertaking it as just another tick box exercise and all and along the way you have been repeatedly making the point of how science is what will rise up to the great challenges of this century as far as the future whether it be more virulent pandemics like terrific so science journalists like ed young have been warning for decades about or it is problems like global warming and climate change where we already seem to be hitting a tipping point of sorts it is science that's gonna be at the forefront of tackling and confronting this crisis head on as such and in this regard how do you see about the general way in which science is funded you have been a strong proponent of public education and a lot of fundamental science research basic science research that typically doesn't really that's only driven by curiosity and isn't really driven by any material needs in the new york case scenarios and all are funded by public by the taxpayers and the public money and all so what sort of future do you see of basic science research and do you see any future of basic science research in the industrial settings considering a lot of our computational research happens in large scale industrial labs alongside big academic labs yeah so i've been really lucky uh within my lab to have funding from philanthropic sources from industry sources and from obviously governmental sources uh and and i think that um you know it's it's quite obvious to me that that is going to be the case going forward that it is uh not possible to rely only on federal funding or philanthropic funding I think it is possible to rely only on on an industrial, uh, you know, funding if you're actually at a company <laughs> uh, doing doing basic research. And there is amazing discovery science being done in in companies. Uh, you know, not just Genentech, uh, which is sort of always held up as the the shining example, but at, at many different different companies, there's amazing research going. I, the the trouble is in in a company. There is a tension between gaining a competitive advantage and the open principles of, of science. And that is, that is where things get a little bit tricky to navigate. Um, I think that obviously in the Bay Area, surrounded by tremendous wealth uh, and, and you know, not just wealth in terms of, you know, the the people you know like like me who are wealthy who, who own a home in the bay area but you know mind-boggling billionaire wealth um you know the the role of philanthropy is going to be something that's interesting to follow over the next few years there have already been some new uh, experiments set up uh you know my friend Sime is is setting up uh arcadia uh uh, funded uh, by uh, Jed, Jed McCaub and, and Sam Altman. Uh, you may have read recently, you know, a, a more mysterious uh, company called Altos Labs that is uh, in technology review that, that you know, is being funded, um, you know, 
are these things philanthropy? Are they industry? That's that's super fascinating. And and like a lot of things that where I look at the landscape, I try to look at it like a, as a scientist and say, clearly the experiment of relying on a single NIH R01 to run a lab has failed. So how are we gonna get science done? And I think it's really important that folks like CIME uh, are, and, and the folks who are moving over to Altos and the folks at Genentech and folks everywhere are experimenting with different models. Uh, and that I'm experimenting with different funding models within, within my own lab. Uh, as well. And, and part of it is, you know, can you convince industry to, you know, that, that by sort of outsourcing some aspect of technology development or exploration to an academic lab, that it is then morally easier to navigate this tension between competitive advantage and openness. Um, you know, with philanthropy, can you convince uh, donors that that their dollars will have maximum impact when given to a lab, either in, directed towards a specific problem or undirected, rather than you know filtering through the government in in some way. Um, it's it's my lab motto. I, I you know I had to bring it up once in, in this podcast is something that Tom and I used to joke about a lot, which is that it's not beer or tacos it's beer and tacos you don't you don't you don't say hey let's get a beer or a taco you get them together and uh and with funding models in science it's not or right it's not federal funding or industry funding or philanthropy funding we need all of this and we need them in different ratios and we need them in different folks to experiment with them in different ways. And to me, that's the that's the that's the way it'll go forward um, with with lots more experimentation. A lot of it occurring in in our backyard here in the Bay Area, but I expect uh, rippling out uh, all throughout the world as well. And do you see the current inequities that are embedded in science sort of manifesting themselves in sort of such endeavors of sorts when we talk about sort of computation playing a role do you see companies that have bigger bank money to spend on compute times uh, powerful gpus and all or bigger university labs compared to smaller institutions and all does one side gain an un, uh, uh, gain a differential advantage because of the status and power and size well the you know the the compute costs um, are important, but still in the grand scheme of biomedical research, even for huge projects, not that large. So, you know, all the raw compute costs that went into, you know, AlphaFold are probably, you know, less than a fancy detector for an electron microscope that we have a bunch of at UCSF, right? It's the so, you know, which isn't to say it's not hundreds of thousands, maybe approaching a million dollars of just raw compute costs just to train, train the models and things like that. But it doesn't, it's not astronomical, the compute, compute costs. The people costs, <laughs> the people are, 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 you know, that's where, that's where the real costs are and how we, how we, um, you know, get the smartest people 
of our generation uh, working on problems like this and not optimizing clicks, uh, I would say DeepMind has succeeded. Like, this is amazing. They had all these really smart people working on this problem. They gave them, you know, some hundreds of thousands to low millions of dollars of compute infrastructure, and they accomplished something marvelous. Um, so I, I don't worry about it from the access to resources as much as I worry about who's got a seat at the table. And, you know, are there mechanisms, sclerotic as they are, built into federal funding that make it more equitable? And, and trust me, it's not equitable. Black investigators get funded at way worse rates than they than they should, based on you know a lot of expectations. There there are biases in there, but it but it's relatively transparent. It can be improved, and and you know there there's a process. Versus you know if a philanthropist says, "Hey Jamie, I'm going to give you uh, you know ten million dollars so you can build the next AlphaFold." ensemble version or whatever, have, have at it with as many GPUs as you want. Uh, you know, that process may be, may be less, less equitable and may have even more biases. That's what's so exciting about what my friend, you know, my, my friend, friend and colleague, uh, you know, Sime is, is doing is really building something with that in mind. And so I'm so proud of, of you know, her and, and I know Tom would be too. Um, but it, it's, yeah, I guess I'm, I, not, not to trivialize the access to resources problem, but to me that, that problem is, is, is solvable. So truly so, and one really hopes initiatives like Arcadia succeed because as you really wonderfully pointed out because the current mechanisms have really let down a lot of people and have impeded science rather than sort of fostering a more equitable future for all and that's why for sort of the world we need to hope for like uh, things like uh, and initiatives like Arcadia succeed and all to showcase a better path for science to move forward and all. And coming to your time in science, so science can be a grueling place sometimes because of the cutthroat nature of it, as you have pointed a lot and all. And there are tons of rejections and all that one routinely faces and all. So what is your go-to mechanism to sort of detach yourself from all the grueling nature of academia and science? Are there any personal individuals that you sort of pursue of sorts to distract yourself from the stresses of running labs, writing grants, and getting rejected by the reviewer too, and on. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think there are a couple of ways that I, I deal with the, the things that you're uh, mentioning in, in that question. One is, I legitimately, in the lab, we only celebrate submission of things. I don't we do not celebrate when reviews come back, when papers get accepted or anything. We celebrate the act, our act of saying we are done with this, which isn't to say we're not willing to learn from the feedback that we get and getting that feedback and learning from it is important, but it's, it's a slight change in mentality that, that I think seems trivial or seems trite at the beginning, but if you really live and breathe it, 
it can have a transformative effect on your ability to deal with rejection, which is just to say, I, I'm doing the best that I can do. I'm going to celebrate that. And then later, if it's rejected, accepted, whatever, I'm just going to try and learn from the feedback and roll with it for the next time. And then the, the other part is, you know, what do I do on a personal level? Um, look, I've got two young boys. My sons are, uh, you know, six and three. And, and that means I don't have the luxury to dwell on my many failures the way I did before I had kids. Uh, and so I, it's hard for me to even imagine a world where I have the bandwidth uh, because, because of the, uh, the bandwidth consumption of parenting that, uh, that, that I can even dwell on, on failure and not just say, you know, onto the next one, onto the next one, onto the next one. So, uh, you know, it may be an unusual argument for having kids, uh, but, you know, the inability to dwell on failure uh, it has been a, a positive aspect of, of having kids, uh, for sure. That's a really fantastic note to end on. And this has been a really wonderful conversation on your through your terrific journey through science and life. And finally, as a Random Works podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and divulge their own experience in a random walk? Yeah, so I, uh, this is the one question that on your list where I, I did some preparation beforehand. So uh, the three people uh, I, I thought of, um, since it seems you're very interested in paths through science, uh, one of uh, them is uh, Sri Kasuri, who is a, a former UCLA a professor and a synthetic biologist who's now the CEO of Octant, who is a, is a good friend of mine. And he is uh, a real, really passionate about a lot of things that I'm passionate about, including public education. And, uh, and, and he's, uh, he's a great guy. The other is Elizabeth Villa, who uh, is a friend of mine, who's a, a structural biologist, cryo-electron tomographer, who's uh, had a really remarkable journey through science, passing through many different countries, and uh, somebody I, I love to grab a beer with. Again, one of these things where in science, you know, probably the aggregate amount of time I've spent with Elizabeth is, you know, very small. Like, you know, we were huge scholars together. So we probably spent like, you know, six days together and been at a couple of meetings, but I feel legitimately, you know, like we're, we're friends. And then the third is a grad school friend of mine named uh, Malik Francis, who is one of the only chefs uh, with a PhD in molecular and cell biology uh, and is a, is a Bay Area chef um, who, who uh, is, is a, was a good friend of mine in, uh, in graduate school and, and uh, and somebody who's had a really different uh, career path as well. Those are some fantastic nominations. And thank you. Thank you for coming and divulging your experience in such a terrific random world. Thank you.